millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 19 in our series for 2019, and today's date is Thursday, June the 6th. First, I talked to Michelle Van Alten, the country manager of Australia New Zealand for Adyen, a leading payments technology company that provides businesses with a single global platform to accept payments anywhere in the world. A senior member of the Adyen team, Michelle has worked with retailers across Europe, the US and APAC. He has extensive experience in the global payments industry and has helped many leading omni-channel retailers roll out payments in new markets around the world. And then I talked to economist Nicholas Gruen, looking at what the Morrison government can learn from Bob Hawke and John Howard. But first, let's talk to Michelle Van Alten. Michelle, uh, tell us about Adyen. Adyen is a global global payments company um, founded in the Netherlands by a team of payment professionals and serial entrepreneurs. Um, We are the payments platform of choice for many of the world's leading companies, including nine out of the ten of the world's largest internet companies. Um, A couple of examples here would be customers like Uber, Netflix, Spotify, Kogan.com, Movember, and Shopo. Yeah. In 2017, we obtained our own acquiring licenses for credit and debit cards in the Australian market, uh, which was a very exciting point in time for us. And today we have offices in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, In a nutshell, Agen enables retailers to consolidate their payments across all stores, all markets, and all channels into one system, and the entire payments operation on a global scale can be handled with a single point of contact, one contract, and a uniform type of type of reporting. Um, I think, Leon, that most shoppers don't really realize it, but every time um, a consumer makes a purchase, their payment data passes through several platforms before settlement. In Australia, it's most likely um, that there are at least four parties involved, um, and with Agen, unlike other payment processors that handle just one part of the overall procedure and outsource the rest, Agen manages every step in a journey all on one platform. Um, well, what does it mean to businesses? Um, this provides them with end-to-end visibility over their payments process, allowing them to understand what needs to be tweaked for better conversion, 
And Argent's end-to-end insights also include customer preferences, which come in handy when businesses look to create more personalized and convenient ways to pay. Um, I understand, well, this might all sound a bit technical, um, so maybe to summarize this all, um, Argent's relentless focus is on offering a one-stop one shop solution to merchants to make it easier for consumers to pay in-store, online, or in-app. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And what it does is you allow the online merchants, like, say, Spotify, uh, to, to actually get closer to their customers by knowing how their customers want to pay. Um, that, is, that is indeed correct. Um, that's indeed the case for, uh, for Netflix. Um, but regardless of the variety of industries and businesses we work for, um, we have realized that a frictionless, seamless payments experience um, is essential to retain customer loyalty for businesses. Um, and that's in Australia, but also outside of Australia. So working with clients from various industries um, and across the world really helps us fine-tune our leading-edge technology and global reach. Um, one of the things that, that comes to mind here, um, and which I think is might be seen as a buzzword uh, in Australia at the moment, but definitely a global trend, uh, will be unified commerce. Um, talking to this now, because I think this is a business design uh, that has emerged from our experience working with international merchants. Um, unified commerce ties multiple sales channels together into one single view of the consumer, and it enables retailers to offer a consistent and seamless experience to their customer, no matter what the journey to a purchase is. Um, a couple of examples, maybe to clarify a little bit, uh, a couple of examples of these customer journeys can, uh, for instance, be buy online, collect in store, or buy in-app, return items in store. Um, maybe the last example, um, I think nothing dampens an in-store shopping experience more than an item being out of stock. Um, with tablet-assisted sales staff or in-store kiosks um, as a solution here, shoppers can actually browse items online while being in-store, pay through a mobile point of sale, and have their items delivered to their home. Retailers call the shopper, shopper journal also endless aisle. 
So with Unified Commerce, I touched upon earlier, um, we simplify the entire payments process, allowing merchants to have one view of their consumer throughout all of these journeys, and with that making it easier to receive payment or refund the customer. So tell me, I mean, how many uh, specifically Australian companies do you have on your portfolio? Um, so Adyen, Adyen is proud to partner with many leading Australian brands. Um, a couple of examples here will be Lorna Jane, uh, Freelancer.com and Movember. Uh, we're helping them to accept payments from their customers in Australia, but also abroad. Um, we ourselves are absolutely global in scope. We currently have operations in the US, APAC, LATAM and in Europe. Um, this means that we have the necessary local market knowledge to help Australian companies expand and reach new customers across the world. Um, so, for example, we work with Australian retailer Shopo um, to offer trusted local payment methods, including Alipay, UnionPay, and WeChat Pay, as well as European payment methods like German Sofort, French Card Bancaire, and Dutch Ideal to their customers around the world. So, when it when it comes to global expansion, um, fragmented payment landscapes and different consumer preferences are challenging areas for businesses. Um, Australia is an example. Australia is very card heavy, as we say. On average, Aussies have 3.4 cards in their wallet. Um, now, this is certainly not the case in every country. Um, I myself are originally from the Netherlands, where only 25% of the people have a credit card. So at Adyen, um, having this global skill, uh, we like conducting research around the consumer to better understand their attitudes and their behavior around payments. Consumer preferences and with the payment culture is constantly evolving. So as a simple example here, um, look at Australia's aspiration to become a cashless society, um, the rise of buy now, pay later payment methods, the Chinese payment methods becoming increasingly more important, um, etc. So I think all of this should not be ignored by Australian retailers because it can lead to a loss of revenue. So do you see Australia becoming more cashless? So I think, I think that's, an, uh, that's indeed an ongoing trend in Australia. Um, and I think as a, as a national progression there, and uh, we've, we've done research on this as well recently, we're seeing, um, we're seeing more and more the, the next evolution would be the, uh, the national progression or evolution into, um, into mobile wallets, um, whereby it all started with cash, uh, from cash it went to card, and now we're seeing a rise in the mobile wallets. And, uh, and do you see any resistance to that happening, or do you see that as a smoother transition? So I think I think we're seeing more and more um, Australian Australian um, banks offering mobile wallets to their consumers, um, as well as more merchants offering these uh, these these payment methods um, to their consumers, uh, which I think is an ongoing trend and one we definitely welcome. Uh, so over what time frame do you see this? So I think. As I mentioned, it is it is indeed an uh, it is indeed an ongoing trend. Another trend which is which is also also definitely interesting, and I think I think very important here to note is that is that payment payment is culturally culturally de- determined, and with that always always evolving. As we now look at the ASEAN platform, um, you know we're currently the only solution that connects directly into Australian consumers' preferred payment methods like Visa and Mastercard. But now we're seeing we're seeing a rapid change whereby um, the likes of WeChat, Alipay, and UnionPay are becoming more and more important. Um, we also offer these on our payment on our on our platform, enabling businesses to accept payments um, across online, in-app, and in-store. 
So what you're, what you're foreshadowing is a radical reshaping of the way people will be paying for goods and the way, the way merchants will be uh, dealing with customers. Well, I think I was just touching upon the Chinese payment methods. So last, if you look at last year, uh, we saw 12.8 trillion, trillion US dollars in mobile transactions last year, uh, with China currently being the world's largest mobile payments market. Um, this to Aussies also presents a huge opportunity uh, for our retailers to tap into this lucrative Chinese tourism market. So um, in 2017 alone, Australia saw a total of 1.3 million Chinese tourists spend a record of 10 billion Australian dollars, accounting for a quarter of Australia's tourism earnings for the year. So this figure is set to boom if Aussie retailers can effectively embrace the power of these payment methods preferred by these consumers. And in effect become more global. Uh, most definitely, most definitely. Um, Australia on itself is a, is a unique market. Um, I think, uh, to your point, we're currently on the cusp of witnessing a behavioral change in how Australians purchase their goods. Recently, ANZ Bank um, recorded a dramatic uptake in the use of mobile payments, almost 600 million in the first half year of the 2018 fiscal year. So, based on insights from our own platform, we can see that the use of digital wallets in Australia has been relatively low. However, 35% of Australian companies have accounts in place to support digital wallets, more in fact than most of our international counterparts. So I think as a nation, um, we are equipped to accommodate these types of payments, and it seems we're slowly starting to warm, to warm up to it. Well, Michelle, that'll be very exciting to watch, and uh, it's great that Arjun's making it all possible, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon. And now let's talk to economist Nicholas Gruen. Uh, Nicholas Gruen, we've just seen uh, Scott Morrison coming from behind and having a surprising election win that nobody expected. Now, you've written that John Howard never had any political momentum and came from behind in each of the elections he won as PM and that Hawke was the ultimate momentum politician. What do you mean and what gave them that momentum? Well... As I've been thinking about this, um, even so, so I wrote an essay when just when Rudd got in in 2008, and I republished it on, at the time when uh, Hawke died, and um, uh, it looked like we would have well, we have a new government in Canberra. It's the same as the old government, or very similar, uh, but it also looked like it was quite likely to be another government. And I I compared Hawke and Howard and. Just to uh, a bit of a spoiler alert here, I'm a big fan of Hawke and I wasn't much of a fan of Howard. And I mean that, I mean, in fact, I preferred Hawke's policies to Howard's policies as well. But I also mean that as a political practitioner. And while both of them had a lot of luck and you need a lot of luck in politics to do as well as either of them did, it seems to me that Hawke's approach was that he was the last prime minister who understood something um, which I think I can clarify even more, uh, even further than I did at the time, which is that I think that Parliament is the ultimate source of sovereignty. It is how we govern ourselves with majorities in Parliament, but that really from the 19th century on, it's lost its capacity, uh, progressively, it has lost its capacity to deliberate. Um, and debates, as we all know, you only have to attend question time, but even normal debates are not really debates. They're little set pieces where the two sides abuse each other, and in political combat, typically, 
the game is essentially a competition between two parties or however many parties you have in which each tries to misrepresent the policies and motives of the other and the winner is the one who does that most successfully. That's a pretty disastrous state of affairs, but that's the situation that we're in. Now, what was different about Hawke was that Hawke had this idea that most people thought, well, most hardheads thought was fairly crazy at the time. So what Hawke did was uh, he came to power with a, the Prices and Incomes Accord, which was an accord, an agreement between the unions and labour. And at the time, the problem was that wages were too high and the accord was a structure in which wages would be negotiated down uh, to a more competitive level. And the the way uh, and, and then this broadened out to a a negotiating forum between uh, the government, the bureaucracy reporting uh, supporting the government, the unions, business and other groups came in uh, on occasion, uh, the, the welfare lobby, the farmers lobby, the conservation lobby. Now, what that did was that when these people met, they're actually focusing on the problems of the nation, foc working out what mattered and what didn't, what was relatively not so important. And of course, they had, had different ideas about how to solve the problems. And, so, and the result is, and, and so what would happen is that these things would then go to Parliament and essentially be endorsed. Everyone was thrashing through the issues and solving problems. Now, if you look at politics since Hawke, that's not really what happens. It, it mostly happens in Parliament. We have a government as the hero, and very quickly they get dragged down. And if you look at Howard... I mean, the, the next question is, well, how can I say this when Howard actually spent longer in office than Hawke? And the difference is that Hawke had a huge amount of momentum. He also had some luck, whereas uh, Howard, in very short order, was behind when he originally taken over in uh, 1996. He lost the election in 1998, but managed to hang on to enough seats to retain government. He then pulled that rabbit out of his hat, the Tampa crisis in um, 2001. And I, I don't quite know how he won the 2004 election. Everybody sort of talks about Mark Latham's handshake and various other things. I'm not too sure. But there wasn't much, uh, there wasn't much momentum in that term of parliament either. And then in 2007, he tried to beat up the... Aboriginal, the crisis of Aboriginal policy, and we had the uh, Aboriginal intervention, and eventually he lost. So I think these are two very different ways of governing, and uh, we will continue to lead a hand-to-mouth existence until we can find some engine of issue discovery and issue debate and process so that we can get broadly agreed agendas for reform. Um, how are we going to do that? I don't know. That means every government is a short-term government. What does that mean for the newly elected Morrison government and its plans for tax cuts? And what lessons can it draw from the Howard and Hawke years? Uh, well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, 
Morrison has got elected partly in the way that Paul Keating got elected by campaigning against a small target and sorry, a large target and has also come up with tax cuts on the never never. Um, so he's got ambitious tax cuts which give away a lot of revenue. And if his forecasts work out, then he'll have that revenue. And and in some sense, if his forecasts work out, then as, at least as far as you look at the world from his point of view, this has worked well because it imposes discipline on the government that he leads, or in the words of Paul Keating, you, I'm, I'm wearing the hair shirt. Um, <laughs> um, so that's fine. The problem is, of course, a little bit like the... Rudd and Gillard governments promising to get back to surplus, that's all on a wing and a prayer. So, um, so you know, it's uh, it's been a costly exercise in which he's made himself hosti hostage to fortune, or at least the country is. Uh, it might work out, it might not. Um, a better way to do this would be to have some mechanism which people trusted, um, and uh, we don't we don't really have that mechanism. So. so um, uh, it'll be more improvising. I, I might say I was really quite struck. Um, I was really quite struck when Kevin Rudd got into power in 2007 that he, it seemed to me he didn't understand that oppositions and governments need to behave very differently because oppositions are not relevant as far as the media are concerned. They basically have to carry on like pork chops to get any kind of attention, so they spend their time making ridiculous statements and striking various poses. Kevin Rudd did that very effectively in campaign mode and then stayed in that mode as government, and I think that that's a very unfortunate thing to do. I think the electorate kind of want government to get off the front pages and run itself, and so if you can keep... This was a bit of a saying that Conservatives had when I was a kid that uh, they wanted to keep government off the front pages. And if a government had been managed to do that for its term, it would often, and, and the economy was continuing to trundle along, they would tend to get re-elected because Australians didn't really want to worry too much about government. And they figured if they weren't hearing much from it, it must be reasonably well. Well, the 90s recession and the global financial crisis seems to have robbed us of confidence. So uh, what can political parties do to forge ahead? Uh, I, I think they need to orchestrate a process of identifying national priorities, but they can't really be the heroes. They have to try to um, they have to try to find ways for the for those idea uh, try to find ways for those ideas to be or become the communities. And unfortunately, the way we've got government set up at the moment, you know, the, the media are a huge part of the responsibility for this. Uh, it's it's very difficult to know how you how you generate momentum. I think I would, um, if I, I, I guess I'd rather be a left of centre government than a right of centre government in, the, in that sense, because I would try to build some kind of coalition, some kind of accord in the way that Hawke did. Um, we started it in 1983. It was incredibly successful. By the time Paul Keating came to power, the bureaucracy had largely unpicked it. Um, and you can argue that mu much of its role, which was 
in wage negotiation had become much less important. Uh, but uh, countries like Ireland, Germany, northern European countries, they used these mechanisms of trying to generate social consensus. Uh, and I think that they make a lot of sense. And in a sense, it, then it doesn't really matter if you have a hung parliament because uh, you can actually... It forces you to negotiate and come to some I, sort of consensus. One of the things, one of the one of the pieces of armchair punditry that we had during the Gillard years was that it was really terrible for Australia to have a hung parliament. Well, the Gillard years were one of the uh, were some of the they were pretty c- catastrophic uh, politically for the Labor government. And the you know there are plenty of there's plenty of blame to go around, but in terms of the quality of government, it was actually pretty good. Um, because what was happening then is the sort of thing that happened under the Hawke years, which is that big issues would come up. The NDIS is an example and carbon pricing is another and they'd be hashed through and the government of the day can't just say, well, here it is, take it or leave it. This is the way we've squared it up with our base. The government of the day was forced to compromise and to find ways to build community consensus around these things. And um, and so I think it was a very successful government. It would, be, it would be nice to say that if you build community consensus around something, it it's hard for oppositions to unpick. I think that's generally the case. But with the carbon uh, pricing regime, it was brand new and it was too easy a target for the opposition and so they managed to pull it apart and eventually we'll have to get back to something similar. So all that's food for thought for the Morrison government's plans for tax changes and uh, we'll see whether they do it and thank you very much uh, Nicholas Gruen. Thanks a lot Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well investors may still be underestimating the full risk to the global economy from a trade war even after US stocks capped the worst month of a year. A recession could begin in as much as nine months if Donald Trump pushes to impose 25% tariffs on additional $300 billion of Chinese imports and if China retaliates with its own countermeasures, according to Chetan Ayer, Chief Economist and Global Head of Economics at Morgan Stanley. The rift between the Trump administration and China has escalated as each side blames the other for the breakdown in talks. Over the weekend, Trump celebrated his trade policies and the recent move to impose tariffs on Mexican goods in response to illegal immigration. While stocks have declined, investors are still overlooking the impact the trade war will have on the global macroeconomic outlook, Aya wrote in a note to clients. Growth will suffer as costs increase, customer demand slows and companies reduce capital spending, he said. As the negative effects for tariffs become more apparent, it may be too late for political action, according to Aya. Policies to easy impact are likely to be reactive and slow to take effect. This coincides with China blaming the US for breakdown in trade talks and taking aim at logistics giant FedEx as it steps up retaliation for US sanctions on tech giant Huawei. China has begun an investigation after FedEx apologised to Huawei for delivery errors that saw two packages being shipped from Japan to Huawei in China diverted to the US. China's news agency, Xinhua, said FedEx had violated Chinese laws and regulations and late last week, Beijing flagged it will soon release a list of other unreliable companies, organisations and individuals. And the New York Times reports that the Trump administration considered imposing tariffs on imports from Australia last week, 
but decided against the move amid fierce opposition from military officials and the State Department. Some of President Trump's top trade advisers had urged the tariffs as a response to a surge of Australian aluminium flowing onto the American market over the past year. But officials at the Defence and State Departments told Mr Trump the move would alienate a top ally and could come at a significant cost to the United States. The administration ultimately agreed not to take any action, at least temporarily. The measure would open yet another front in a global trade war that has pitted the United States against allies like Canada, Mexico, Europe and Japan, and deepen divisions with countries like China. It would also be the end of a reprieve for the only country to be fully exempted from the start from the steel and aluminium tariffs that Mr Trump imposed last year. And Google parent Alphabet, Facebook and Apple tumbled as the companies appear set to undergo US antitrust probes after the Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission agreed to split up oversight of technology giants. The DOJ's preparations to investigate Google, first reported late Friday, mark the Trump administration's first concrete steps to scrutinise the potentially anti-competitive conduct of a large technology firm. The FTC will oversee antitrust scrutiny into whether Facebook's practices harm competition in the digital market. Reuters reported that the DOJ has been given jurisdiction over a potential probe of Apple. Amazon could also be scrutinised as a result of a new agreement between regulators that puts it under the jurisdiction of the FTC, the Washington Post reported over the weekend. American antitrust officials are under increasing pressure from both Democratic and Republican lawmakers to step up scrutiny of technology giants, and several presidential candidates have already weighed in. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren laid out a detailed plan for breaking up the tech giants in March. And the Reserve Bank in Australia has cut its official interest rate by 0.25 percentage points to a new record low of 1.25%. While it is the first change in the RBA's policy setting since August 2016, it was a widely expected result after RBA Governor Philip Lowe flagged it last month. Philip Lowe has set up financial markets to expect a further easing bias to 1%, suggesting the only way the bank can achieve employment growth and inflation targets is through cutting rates. The market is also pricing in a greater than 50% chance of a third cut by February next year. And according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the economy grew by 0.4% in March in seasonally adjusted chain volume terms, a result that was in line with market expectations. The modest result followed a 0.2% increase in the December quarter that was unchanged from the initial estimate. Despite the modest acceleration in the economy to start the year, growth over the year still slowed to 1.8%, the weakest expansion since the September quarter of 2009, the tail end of the GFC. And Australia's workplace productivity growth has slowed to a crawl as the economy struggles to shake off the drag from the end of its mining investment boom early in the decade. The labour productivity rate, declined to 0.4% in the year through June 2018, compared with an average 2.2% since the mid-1970s, the Productivity Commission said. In the mining industry, labour productivity has swung from 4.6% growth in fiscal 2016 to a 0.4% decline within just two years. Other sectors slowing include drought-affected agriculture, forestry and fishing, down 12%, arts and recreation, down 7.4%, and electricity, gas, water and waste, down 4.5%. And Australian retail sales fell unexpectedly in April. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, retail turnover fell 0.1% during the month in seasonally adjusted terms, a result well below the 0.2% increase expected by financial markets, 
with consumers struggling with low wage rises and concerns about job security keeping their wallets shut. In seasonally adjusted terms, ANZ job ads fell 0.8.4% in May and 14.9% for the year. This is the weakest monthly result since January 2010 and the steepest annual fall since 2013. And Australian property prices posted the smallest monthly decline in a year in May, adding to signs the worst of the housing downturn has passed. Housing values nationally fell 0.4% last month compared to a 0.5% decline in April, according to CoreLogic Inc. data released on Monday. From a year ago, prices declined 0.7.3%. And the odds are stacked against Australia producing anywhere near an average crane crop this winter, according to agribusiness specialist Rabobank. The bank's Australian 2019 winter crop outlook warns dry conditions across much of the country have affected seeding as time runs out for farmers to put in a crop for this year. Rabobank forecasts domestic grain prices, already blamed for pushing up the price of food, will remain high based on depleted local stocks and another below average harvest. And Telstra is set to axe 10,000 contractors from its workforce over the next two years. The cuts, which will affect technical contractors as well as customer service and call centre staff, are in addition to the 8,000 permanent jobs the telco has already said it will eliminate under its T22 transformation plan. CEO Andy Penn admits the human dimensions of the numbers is challenging, but says the company has an extensive program of support in place. And a Melbourne gardener, who claims his cancer was caused by the weed killer Roundup, has launched the first case in Australia against agrochemical giant Monsanto. Michael Ogliarolo said there was no warning the product was dangerous and that exposure to the ingredient glyphosate caused his Hodgkin's lymphoma. The case follows similar trials in the US, where Monsanto, which was bought by German pharmaceutical company Bayer last year, was most recently ordered to pay a couple $2.89 billion. And the corporate regulator has ramped up scrutiny of initial coin offerings and trading of crypto assets, declaring some of the activity to be in breach of corporate laws amid signs cryptocurrency markets could be set for a new bull run. The Australian Securities and Investments Commission has also warned brokers and issuers it's increasing scrutiny on suspicious equities trading after an investigation found potential insider trading ahead of mergers and acquisitions, especially in the materials sector. Last week, ASIC updated its Information Sheet 225 on initial coin offerings and crypto assets to tell potential issuers to better understand their legal obligations. ASIC Commissioner Cathy Armour told a Refinitive Regulatory Conference in Sydney on Tuesday, the regulator has seen some concerning examples of offers for crypto assets that appear to involve misleading or deceptive conduct or that are promoted in a way that does not comply with the regulatory framework. And members of Suncor Group's superannuation funds are preparing to sue the company for up to $180 million following claims that deliberately exploited a loophole in the future of financial advice reforms. The action, led by law firm William Roberts Lawyers, will allege Suncor breached its best interest duty and wrongfully stripped up to 170,000 members of hard-earned monies. The allegations, which emerged in August during the superannuation round of a Hain Royal Commission, hark back to the period before July 2013, just before a ban on conflicted remuneration became law. The action will allege Suncor deliberately exploited grandfathering provisions in this law that would allow it to continue paying trailing commissions to its financial advisers. While the practice itself was within the law, the action claimed the alleged decision to amend agreements to allow grandfathered trailing commissions was not in the interests of members. And battered 
by the Banking Royal Commission and facing big losses in default superannuation cover, the life insurance industry is fighting back with the launch of two campaigns designed to win over politicians and the public. Former Labor Minister Bernie Ripoll will front a campaign aimed at convincing policymakers to allow life insurance advisors to keep at commissions. A major insurer, AIA, will run advertisements warning that changes to superannuation laws next month will leave some workers without cover. Mr Rapol said life insurers were seeking to replicate the success of mortgage brokers, which convinced Treasurer Josh Frydenberg to dump plans to ban trailing commissions in that industry. Mr Rapol, who in 2009 chaired the inquiry that led to the future of financial advice laws that banned upfront and trailing commissions in financial advice, said the victory by mortgage brokers proved that not all commissions are bad. And News Corp is set to axe 50 jobs across its Australian business, including editorial roles from major metropolitan mastheads. The Journalists' Union, the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, said on Twitter there would be about 50 jobs to go, about a third of which would come from the Herald Sun and Weekly Times in Victoria. Cuts were flagged by News Corp chairman Michael Miller in a series of interviews in Nine and News Corp papers on Monday. However, he did not specify the number of staff who would be affected. Mr Miller said cuts would come from across the business, not just editorial, and are not just in one geographic location. And the iconic and historic SPC fruit and vegetable business based in Victoria's Goulburn Valley has been sold by Coca-Cola Amatil for $40 million. The sale to a group called Shepherd and Partners Collective is expected to be completed by the end of this month and generated a profit of 10 to $15 million for the bottler of Coke. And British billionaire Sanjeev Gupta, says a deal to build Australia's largest solar plant with Chinese funding and technology heralds a new era in economic cooperation between the two countries, which goes beyond selling products to each other. Acknowledging there were tensions between Canberra and Beijing, Mr Gupta said it was time China realised it could avoid trade disputes by creating jobs and building industries in the countries they were investing in, instead of relying on a trade-based relationship which focused on taking resources away. Mr Gupta is the executive chairman of GFG Alliance, which owns the Wyala Steelworks in South Australia. The company on Monday signed an agreement with Chinese energy company Shanghai Electric to build the 280 megawatt Kultana Solifair project. The project will power GFG's Wyala Steelworks, which plans to expand to 10 million tonnes of steel output a year from 1.2 million tonnes, and the first deal under a broader US $1 billion, that's $1.4 billion Aussie, investment program by his majority-owned renewables company, Simic Energy Australia. It would produce 600 gigawatts of energy a year. Mr Gupta, who has rejuvenated a string of steelmaking and engineering plants in the UK over the past years, also wants Australia to revive its industrial and manufacturing sector through investment and overcoming high power prices with renewable energy. And that's it for this week. And next week I talk to Chris Croker, the Managing Director of Impact Investment Partners, and they're setting up an exciting and innovative Indigenous Infrastructure Investment Fund. And I'll be talking to ComSec economist Craig James about what trends we can expect in the market for the week ahead. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care, be good, and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ 
the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.